The Rural Health Voice, Episode 17, Peer Recovery. Welcome to The Rural Health Voice. I am Beth O'Connor, your host. We discuss rural health issues at the grassroots level and how state and federal policies play out in our local communities. What's the opposite of addiction? Jason Pritchard, Community and Coalition Engagement Specialist for Ballot Health, joined me to discuss how people recovering from addiction can be successful. Hello, Jason. Welcome to the Rural Health Voice. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Great. You are certified as a peer recovery specialist. Is that correct? Yes, ma'am. So tell us what a peer recovery specialist does. So what a peer recovery specialist does, they're a person that has at least two years um, in recovery from either um, a mental illness or um, substance use disorder or co-occurring, which can be both. And then they are kind of like a peer support or recovery coach to set an example and to help um, others kind of in four categories being ethics, advocacy, uh, recovery and wellness guidance and mentoring. So, so break those four down for me a little bit. So eth- ethics, advocacy, recovering and mentoring. Yes. So advocacy, you kind of, you figure out like, for instance, one thing we're facing right now in the Commonwealth is, um, the barrier crimes. So you have the state wanting people to, who are in recovery to help lead and coach other people who are not in recovery and help them get into recovery. But you have barrier crimes where if a person has a drug conviction, then they're not allowed to um, operate in that function with the CSBs and the health department. So like advocating, then you would go to different representatives and you would advocate on behalf of those who have those crimes in order to get the laws changed or um, maybe there's need for reentry or there's need for housing or transportation. And so you just go and form the connections in order to advocate those needs on behalf of others. And then mentoring, you kind of set an example um, and you lead by example to help others understand uh, how to be successful um, and how to locate resources and how to utilize resources and to just really stay motivated. And then with wellness and recovery is basically just how it sounds is like, so you try to help them understand how to have like mental health, um, physical health and emotional health. And, um, and those three areas will, if they're maintained, a person typically will stay in recovery. Um, mental health is just how it sounds. You plug them in uh, with mental health specialists, counselors, um, whatever their area of need, and you kind of do a warm handoff. Okay, so that was mental. The physical is helping them make sure they have a doctor uh, if they need uh, testing, kind of like with your harm reduction. So if they need to be tested for HIV, hepatitis, if they just need general health care, some, some people coming out of substance use, they may haven't seen a doctor like a medical doctor in several years. 
Um, and then spiritual or emotional um, recovery is getting them plugged into a group that suits their need as far as their uh, emotional or spiritual needs. Um, you'll have some people who would be Christian. You have some people who may be Muslim and just finding a, a, a recovery community that they feel like they fit and belong. Great. So really taking care of the whole person. Absolutely. Now, you mentioned reentry. What do we mean when we say reentry? So reentry can be classified, uh, I guess, technically in um, three different categories. So we can have reentry, meaning uh, when they reenter society after incarceration. We can say reentry after they reenter society from a mental illness. Or we can say re-enter society after a long-term substance abuse treatment program. So there's really three different tiers of re-entry. So again, looking at the whole person. Absolutely. So you went through the certification process to be a peer recovery specialist. What does it take to get certified? Okay, so um, the... There's a few different steps. So the first thing you do is you need to have a high school education or a GED. And so the first step would be to request that and you send it to the Virginia Certification Board, which they have a website that is www.va, like Virginia, cert, C-E-R-T, the word board, B-O-A-R-D, dot org. And so you can submit everything, and they have an address on there and the steps to walk through. Um, so you do that. There's an application you have to fill out. And typically, the application costs $125. But when I filled out for it, and I believe it's still going on, there's a $100 scholarship through a grant. So you actually only pay a $25 application fee. Um, and then you're required to do 500 hours um, kind of like recovery hours. So um, they can be done several different places and there's no specific designation um, under the certification that a person has to be supervised. So it could be a, a, a pastor, it could be somebody at a harm reduction, MAT clinic, and you would basically just go and volunteer. Um, or you could be already employed there and you you do 500 hours and record them and you have someone sign off on them. Then you have to take a uh, sort of uh, peer recovery class um, in Virginia that is 72 class hours and eight hours of homework. Um, and then it's offered um, around the area regionally, and they're fixing to be training more trainers. They just released the notification yesterday of who those 12 trainers are going to be. Um, and then you complete that, and then you have to take a state examination. Um, that is called ICRC certification. And um, once you complete that and you submit everything to the Virginia Certification Board, then you receive your uh, certificate in the mail. Then you can take that certificate and you become, so you will be certified, you'll be a CPRS. But now in the Commonwealth, you are able to bill for your services under Medicaid. In order to do that, you need to be an RPRS, which is Registered Peer Recovery Ser Specialist. And the way you do that is you get registered with the Board of Counseling, and there's a whole process to go through. In order to do that, you have to first be a CPRS. But then there's another process you go through to become an RPRS, which I am now both. Oh, good for you. <laughs> Thank you. So, 
So do you see barriers to certification in the rural areas of Virginia? Is it, is it hard to get certified? So initially, when I first started on this uh, process, it was there was barriers because of uh, how far away you had to go to get your certification. There was no certifications west of Roanoke. There was no um, instructors. So we had to wait for uh, a person to come from Roanoke or Richmond down to our area to offer a class, or we had to find someone that would fund us or somehow to afford to go to those areas and take the class. Luckily, in my situation, I was... um, funded by Ballad Health, Highlands Community Service Board, and ASAC, all in conglomeration together to send me to get my certification. Um, but once I got down there, I, I'm, I'm very vocal and passionate about this area. So I began to express to them, and now I'm realizing what I was doing is advocating on behalf of Southwest Virginia um, for a lack of resources. So it was about two weeks later, I received a phone call plugging me in with Department of Behavioral Health Services. And then I got invited to a meeting where I met Dr. Carol Pratt and I began to uh, connect with her and she had me f- send an, uh, basically a summary of how hard it was for me to get my certification. And uh, then that tied me in with uh, Mr. Blackwell, who is the Director of Behavioral and Recovery Services for the Commonwealth. And we got a Training scheduled for June 17th, 18th, and 19th, where they're going to train 12 new um, instructors, or they call it the training of trainers, a TOTS, um, that will be able to offer uh, the classes in our area. And I know of at least two, and I'm trying to get a third one. Uh, So we'll have three instructors for Southwest Virginia. Um, And then there's several for Christiansburg and Roanoke being trained as well. So the barriers were a lot harder, but they're in the next couple of months, they'll be getting a lot easier. And a big benefit is that every person that is trained in this class, they're being trained at no cost other than their dinner um, each night. And they are then required to go back and offer one training class for free of 12 people. So, I mean, we could see anywhere from 30 to 60 people CPRS is trained in our area in the next two or three months. So really paying it forward. Absolutely. That's fabulous. Now, one of the requirements for certification is to be in recovery yourself. Can you share your recovery story with us? How did you get from there to here? So uh, I actually just wrote this down, but I don't have it in front of me, but um So I spent 16 years in active addiction and in 2012 uh, or actually in 2011, uh, I kind of seen I had messed up a lot of opportunity. Uh, I have a finance degree from Virginia Tech and but the whole time I had been active addiction, even while I was in, in college and it just really began to weigh on me and I was incarcerated on a, a, a six month charge for distribution of Adderall. And I really, I just started looking at my life. And one day I just picked up this book and it had all these things. It was like archeology span versus Christianity. How could dinosaurs be on the ark and things like that. And so I'm feeling convicted, but not really wanting to believe it. So, but I start reading and God just starts working on my heart. And one night I'm like, I realized that I had messed up a lot and it wasn't really people that I had been sinning against the whole time it had been against God. And 
I cried out. I said, Lord, here is a life that is so broken. And if you think you can do something with it, then here it is. And (laughs) the funny thing is, is about a month and a half after that, I received another felony indictment. And then I go to court for that and plead guilty. And I'm supposed to receive teen challenge program. And so they give me the teen challenge program. And about five days later, the federal, the FBI come to my house and they indict me for distribution of cocaine. Um, And so in 2012, March of 2012, I went to prison for five years and um, I had already started working on myself spiritually, but I also realized that there was a lot I needed to change mentally and physically. So while incarcerated, I took part in programs like uh, what's inside known as the 100-hour drug program, um, but they call it the drug abuse program, the DAP in in the federal system. And then when I got to the state system, I was taking things like thinking for a change, um, anger management, and then I completed 15 different Bible correspondence classes, including receiving my minister's license while I was incarcerated. Um, and I just began to compile like lists of organizations that would come to our career fairs and say that they were going to, that they were willing to help us when we got out. And so the day they released me, I, I decided I, I was determined. I'm not only am I not going back to, um, be incarceration or I'm not going to be part of the recidivism rate, but I'm going to try to help others too. And so I just embarked on this, what I feel is my calling um, to help others. So you have gone from active addiction and dealing to being incarcerated to very recently, you and I were in a sit down meeting with Senator Tim Kaine talking about substance abuse in Southwest Virginia. That's quite a journey. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> it's incredible. So, you know, it was a long process for you. And of course, with recovery, we know that process doesn't end. What are some of the barriers to recovery that you have seen either for yourself or for those that you are helping? So uh, the biggest one, there's two really right now that outside we've already discussed the barrier crimes, but um, there's two other specific areas where I'm trying to um, operate and one is we really lack detox facilities so i i um work with an organization called tri-cities recovery and we operate out of bristol virginia and so we do a lot of placing people in long-term residential programs within the faith-based community but in order to enter those programs they must be detoxed so it's not even about a 30-day program. I'm looking for programs that can accept people for seven days, help me get them detoxed, and then I can place them in long-term treatment. But I've had several people, at least three in the last two weeks, say, listen, I'm high right now, but I won't help. And then I'm looking for an open bed to try to get them detoxed and cannot find it. So that's one barrier. And the second barrier is transitional housing. And once they've went through de- um, treatment or they've went through detox and they're waiting to be accepted into a residential program or they've completed prison sentence or anything and they're returning home and there's no transitional housing. So I'm trying, I'm doing in my own ability what I can. And um, one year and one week out of prison, which I've only been out of prison just a little over, like not even 
two years and a month, just a little over two years. And, uh, but one year, one week out of prison, I was able to secure a mortgage for a hundred thousand dollars and bought a house and it was a four bedroom house. And so I've been acting kind of as a landlord and taking people in who are in need of transitional housing and then setting an example for them, uh, working with probation and, I have one guy staying with me now and he works a job, pays his rent. He just completed a one year uh, residential drug program and he's doing awesome. And there'll probably be a guy, uh, moving in again in August and he's coming out of a, um, a program that's inside Department of Corrections. Uh, but that's the two biggest things, transitional housing and detox programs. So. I think we've cycled back to looking at the whole, whole person. You need to be clean. You need a place to live and you need a place to work. Absolutely. Actually, the thing is, we just did the sharing solutions with the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. So really, I mean, I work with Ballot Health and I have four convictions on my record, including one was it was an accident, but I, I did it. It was a assault on a police officer. So technically that classifies as a violent crime, but I work for ballot health, which is just amazing what God has done in the doors he's opened. But the businesses are so in need of work. If we can get them clean and sober, employment is pretty much a given. Yeah. One of the things at that uh, event that you were talking about, the, the sharing solutions event, that I thought was really striking. One of the things they talked about is people in recovery, you know, because of stigma, they tend to be looked down upon is from what I've seen, but people in recovery, they got no place to go but up. And so they turn out to be very good employees because they need to prove it to themselves. They need to prove it to their employer. They need to prove it to their community that they really can do this. Absolutely. What advice do you have for someone who is in recovery? So I guess my biggest piece of advice is the long ranger tactic does not work. And it does not matter if you've been in recovery one week or 10 years. You cannot do this by yourself. It is not something if we think about the when we were in our addiction, the first thing you wanted to do when you went to get high was isolate yourself. And isolation uh, leads to relapse. So um, the opposite of addiction is relationship and connection. Um, I just really strongly recommend to find some kind of community organization. Uh, myself, like I say, I go to live in free classes at Tri-C's Recovery every Thursday night. Uh, we serve a meal and then we have the live in free classes. Um, I go to church on Sunday. So I just found somewhere that I was accepted and was able to fit in. And I believe that is the biggest thing to stay in. Uh, I don't like saying the word clean because it implies uh, that someone's dirty, but the best way to stay uh, in recovery. Great. Great. And I mentioned a little bit about stigma with in relation to people not being able to find jobs. What, what other issues with stigma do you see in our communities? So uh, I guess is like uh, you think a lot of times you've burned so many bridges and you've done things to family members or things that's been in the newspaper. So they see you as like, they're just waiting for you to mess up. And um, I guess uh, in a lot of situations, like let's go with MAT, a lot of people don't consider MAT necessarily to be a form of recovery. But I mean, a person has to get clear headed enough to where they can pursue other 
endeavors. So I would say right now um, the medical assisted treatment has a huge stigma on it. And um, I was doing this uh, with part of my work with Ballot Health. I was doing an active addicts roundtable where I was actually going out and talking to people who are in active addiction. And I asked them, I said, well, what's the biggest barrier for you to enter recovery? And you would think it would be transportation or lack of resources or funds. And they told me that the biggest barrier was that there was no difference in the stigma versus whether they were uh, an active addict or whether they pursued uh, services through an MAT clinic. And that was really shocking. Sure, because you know one of the things we know about medication assisted treatment is it you know it can really be the bridge between active addiction active addiction and recovery, but you know many you know much of the mindset around addiction is the concept of you can't you can't have anything it has to be complete abstinence you know one of the things that we have drilled into our breath heads through things like 12-step programs and, and stop smoking programs is you, you can't have even one. And I think people are confusing medication-assisted treatment with the concept of not being completely abstinent, whereas probably you need to think of it more as you know, people who are trying to quit smoking. If you're using the nicotine patches, you know that's a very effective way to stop smoking, and you're still getting the nicotine, but it's a way to essentially wean yourself off of, of that craving. And so, you know, we've seen it too with medication-assisted treatment is that we have programs and communities and whatever who, who don't want to be part of that process because they think it's just enabling people with substance use disorders when the reality and the research tells us that this is a highly effective method for people who want to be in recovery and stay in recovery. Yes. So if someone is concerned about a friend or a family member who may have a substance use disorder, what do you think that they should do? What steps can they take to help that person? So I believe the best steps is like, they're like with our uh, program, Living Free, we have a class where people can come out and they can see like there's a specific program tailored for family members. It's called Concerned Persons Group, where they can look for signs of addiction. Maybe they don't even, maybe they suspect, maybe they're a parent that thinks their child's using drugs or, um, you know, or they've called them once or twice, but they don't know what level uh, the person's functioning at currently. And so they can walk through, but, um, the, I would say education, just, there are so many community coalition programs, um, all throughout Southwest Virginia. And if a person is not a member of a local community coalition, uh, prevention program, I strongly urge them to get involved, but they usually offer educational programs to where you can go and, um, you know, you learn and get education on what to look for and uh, what resources are available and just be prepared because we can't want recovery for anyone. We have to wait for the person to want recovery for themselves, but we can be prepared so that when that person cries out and they're like, okay, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired, then we're there to give them a hand and provide them with an avenue. Absolutely. Let's make sure that door's open once somebody's ready to step through. Yes. If you could do anything, what would you do to improve health and health care in rural America? Well, mm, 
I think, honestly, I believe it starts with insurance. I know right now, and I know that's going to be a hot topic, but it's some places accept insurance. Some places do not accept insurance. Um, And like I've seen it at the MAT clinics, I was speaking with one particular organization who I will remain nameless, but they currently don't accept insurance. And the reason being is because they said it's so hard to get reimbursed that if they did accept insurance, they'd probably be out of business in the in the first 30 days. So um, a person pursuing that avenue, even if they have Medicaid or 10 care or things like that, they can't enter. The organizations are not taking that insurance because the reimbursal process is just so slow and there's so much red tape. Um, so if there was one thing I would say, uh, needs to be looked at is insurance and coverage reform. Fabulous. Well, thank you for talking with me today, Jason. You're welcome. That's Jason Pritchard from Ballot Health. If you would like to read his full recovery testimony, please review our show notes. If you are a healthcare provider who wants to earn CMEs related to the opioid crisis, check out the upcoming Prescription Drug and Heroin Misuse Forum. Four events will be held in locations around Virginia this June. To find the one nearest you, visit vrha.org and select the Education Calendar under the Resources tab. The Rural Health Voice is the podcast of the Virginia Rural Health Association. It is sponsored by the Virginia State Office of Rural Health and underwritten by the National Rural Health Association. 